Almost. 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 Major. 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 Holy fucking shit, this is major! Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Almost Major, where we talk about the many major studios throughout the years and the movies they have released. My name is Kevin Tudor, and I am here with my co-hosts, Brian and Doyle. Say hi. Hello. Great to be here. And with Charlie Nash. Hey. Okay, so our first movies we're going to discuss today are Stir of Echoes 1999 and Soul Survivors of 2001. So before we start that, we're going to talk about uh, pretty much what we're going to be doing with this podcast. So it's going to be various type of miniseries about different type of mini-majors. Our first one is Artisan Entertainment, and after that's done, we'll go on to another mini-major, and it just keeps going from there. So... To uh, talk about the movies we're going to be doing, like I said, today is Stir of Echoes and Soul Survivor. We're also going to be covering Permanent Midnight from 1998, Requiem for a Dream 2000, Blair Witch Project 1999, Blair Witch 2 2000, Ghost Dog, Panic, etc. So it covers the gamut from 1998, I think, all the way to 2003. Uh, When was the pun? 2004 with The Punisher. That's the last one. Some of the episodes are going to be themed, like this one is a, a supernatural horror theme. Some of them are just by year. Some of them are wild, like I want to do the Jerry Springer movie and also talk about House of the Devil 2003 at the same time, because why not? So yeah, it's going to be... House of the Dead, yes. House of the Devil would be actually fun to talk about. But <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen House of the Dead since it came out, so that's going to be fun. I've only seen the trailer, and I remember I saw a movie with my mom when that trailer was happening, and all I remember was a guy sticking his tongue in someone's ear, and my mom just going, ugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, a... That's the only thing I remember about that movie. <laughs> or advertisements for it, at least. Well, they're on an island, and there's a party sponsored by Sega, because, of course... <laughs> And then there's a lot of jumping up in the air, slow-mo Matrix ripoff shots four years later. So it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. I think that's Uwe Boll's first big movie. I think so. His first big one, I think. Artisan birthed the legend of Uwe Boll. Boll. Yeah, because I think after that's Alone in the Dark. And then it's just it's a shit show after that. But I think that's his first Anyway, I, I, re- I remember I had the opportunity to see Alone in the Dark on my birthday, and I went with Hide and Seek instead. The, the Robert De Niro, Dakota Fanning movie everybody loves so much. <laughs> so you were going to fail no matter what? No matter what. I also think Boogeyman was that year. Is that, um, that's the guy from Seventh Heaven, right? Yeah, and Zoe Deschanel's sister, whose first name I can't think of. Uh, Emily. Emily Deschanel. Emily, Emily Deschanel. From Bones. Yes. Yeah. Bones. Bones. Everyone's favorite show. <laughs> yes. Um, I did see that when it came out. I remember nothing about it. I just remember the cover. That's it. So enough about Bones. We were talking about Bones. Is this a Bones podcast? No. Let's get into... I'm going to run down the origins of Artisan Entertainment and where it starts. And it actually starts in 1981. Um, a lot of this is a lot of merging companies jargon, but I've tried to shorten it as much as I can, but it does have some very wild turns. 1981, Artisan is uh, first known as Family Home Entertainment, a.k.a. FHE, which was founded in 1981 by Noel C. Bloom. 
Although VCRs were still very niche in 1981, Bloom linked up with numerous film production companies and they provided the rights for VHS copies of their films. In 1983, they starred USA Sports Video and USA Home Video, and USA Home Video's distributing movies like um, Silent Night, Deadly Night, so not family movies. So that's kind of their more serious brand of stuff. In 1985, these brands all combined into IVE, a.k.a. International Video Entertainment, and was used to distribute titles that USA Home Video did previously. By 1986, by this time, video distribution had become such a lucrative operation that companies such as IVE were able to help underwrite costs of movies in exchange for video rights. Uh, securing the rights to even a single popular title could be enough to support a company in the mid-80s. In August, IVE brings in former chief operator of RCA, Jose Menendez, to head the company. Um, in 1987, less than a year later, after not turning a profit, IVE bought interest in Lieberman's Enterprises, a Minneapolis company that delivers software to retailers. Shortly thereafter, IVA gets bought by Caraco Pictures which put out Total Recall, Basic Instinct, and the first three Rambo movies. Bloom leaves around this time to start Celebrity Home Entertainment, which just put out a bunch of, you know, obscure stuff from around the world. Now, fast forward two years to 1988, IVE and FHE merge with Lieberman to consolidate into live entertainment, and the company finally becomes profitable. Around this time, Menendez wants to be less reliant on strictly releasing Carolco movies as other mini-majors such as Canon and De Laurentiis weren't doing the best financially at the time. And Live at the time had 1,300 titles, which was not much at the time compared to other majors. And uh, Menendez wanted to cut the amount of movies they released to just 24 a year and signed some hot producers at the time, including Taylor Hackford, to some deals. Having gone through the loss prior to the acquisition from Carol Co., Menendez looked at the other independent companies that were spending too much and being financially unstable and wanted no parts of that. Uh, Menendez told the LA Times in December 1988 that you can read article after article which tell you independent video companies are having a difficult time. And here's the wild part of it. In 1989, Menendez's son murdered him and his wife, also known as the Menendez brothers. That was an insane thing to read about. I had no idea that he was involved with the Menendez brothers. That's insane. Yeah, insane. Like, wow. Apparently before their sons were caught for the crime, people suspected that it had something to do with the mob since it was rumored around the time that Live had alleged mob ties, which... I haven't found anything else about that, so that's just something to ponder. In 1990, IVE becomes live home video. Wayne Patterson is named live chairman and CEO. 1991, Carol Co. and Live tried to merge, but Carol Co. and Live weren't doing too good financially. January 11th, 1991, Live Entertainment buys Vestron for $24 million after Vestron Pictures wasn't looking too good. Vestron put out Dirty Dancing, Abel Ferrara's China Girl, and... I see they also put out Bob Balaban's Parents, which that's, I also... That's what I, was, that's what I was about to mention, yeah. So oh, good. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> Stuff starts to change a little bit in 1992. Live entertainment starts to produce, but mostly co-produce theatrical films from 1992 to 1998. Major releases include Reservoir Dogs, Trees Lounge, and Wishmaster. 1994, Roger Balag... Balagi whatever his name is, took the helm of Live. 
His influence as CEO was profound. As the Hollywood Reporter explained in April 21st, 1997, he was, quote, instrumental in transforming live from essentially an inquirer and a supplier of home video product into a diversified entertainment company that competed with major Hollywood studios. 1997, despite Balag's efforts to transform live into a new sort of company, his freedom to operate was constrained by the pressure of live shareholders. In April 1997, the situation changed dramatically when Live agreed to be acquired for $150 million and is taken private. Live's new management, Los Angeles Times explains in July 1998, loudly vowed to turn Live into the preeminent independent motion picture studio. Although Belog was initially retained as Live's chairman, new executives Bill Block, Mark Circio, yeah, we'll go with that, Mark Circio and Amir Circio, Mark Circio and Amir Mullane Strove to craft a new image and purpose for live 1998 after these accomplishments live focused on polishing its image quote we were tarnished by the past Circio confined in la times july 27th 1998 referring to the menendez scandal as well as some mediocre films live had created to emphasize the break with the past the company changed its name to artisan entertainment in april 1998 we decided artisan best described our drive and dedication in bringing quality entertainment to audiences worldwide Circio said in a press release explaining the company's new moniker. Even more important to Artisan's reinvention were the relationships it formed with top filmmakers. With acclaimed directors such as Steven Soderbergh, Artisan sought only financial stakes and did not meddle in creative differences. The strategy paid off. July 10th, 1998, their first film, Pie, was released. They finally start to become profitable, and the rest is history. So there. It's funny. I think my first, the first artisan film I ever saw was Requiem for a Dream, and then I went back and watched Pie. So definitely. That's the same thing I did. Yeah. Because I had a, I think like in the early 2000s, there was a two pack DVD of Pie and Requiem for a Dream. There was. Yep. I remember that. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I did to, because I'm 1000% my first artisan movie was Blair Witch Project had to be and then probably Requiem right after that Brian what do you what do you remember of artisan I think I remember I think the first like when you sent me the list of artisans movies I think the one that I, that I saw first was probably The Limey uh by Steven Soderbergh uh, I remember watching it with my parents when I was like in eighth grade but I do remember I think recognizing the logo remembering the logo is the way of the gun which uh was christopher McCoy's debut because that movie starts right off with like the logo's there for like half a second and then rolling stones rip this joint plays like as soon as the the logo drops i remember like that very specifically um it just like starts right in and that's like the artist and logo i was like oh okay that's what i associated with but yeah Yeah, because i always associated with that that zoom in before blair witch and i was like oh fuck some scary shit's about to happen i don't like this logo i don't like what's about to happen it's gonna be scary shit um oh yeah we should probably explain uh who we are uh we just said our names <laughs> it's first episode folks um my name is kevin tudor i used to be a film journalist for a few years and now i'm just a film watcher but i guess and now i'm a film podcaster that's where i'm at what about you bryden um yeah i'm bryden doyle uh i'm based here in ontario in canada i am currently in the cinema and media studies program at york university uh taking online classes right now um i did a little bit of film writing when i was in high school i wrote reviews for my local paper uh which like started out as writing stuff on facebook and um i started that sort of waned a little bit as i went into university but i have had a couple of writings recently in like school magazines and like uh like the in the school newspaper so yeah just writing sporadically but 
like I, I'm just happy to be watching movies too in my spare time and talking about them now with you guys. Right. What about you, Charlie? Yeah, um, I'm Charlie Nash. Um, I'm a member of the Boston Online Film Critic Association. Not as active as of late, especially in these post-pandemic times, but occasionally write uh, for Edge Media Network and other various outlets that I can pitch to. And I'm also currently a uh, supervisor at the Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline, Massachusetts, which has been around since 1933 and is uh, a theater that is very dear to my heart. And I've been seeing movies there for the past over 10 years at this point. So, yeah. Hell yeah. Okay, so we're going to go um, in the way of release. We're going to start with Stir of Echoes so that we can finish big with Soul Survivors. Um <laughs> Let's see, uh, Bryden, do you want to give us a little update or tell us about Star of Echoes? Sorry, I can't talk. Well, I saw a guy who got a two-inch needle stuck into his arm while he was under hypnosis, didn't feel pain. Okay, Kreskin, prove it. <clears throat> Hypnotize somebody. Yeah, do me. No. Come on. What's the worst that can happen? Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Why do I know that song? Are you okay? What the hell did she do to me? He hasn't gone to work. He sleeps like 12 hours a night. Why are you digging? The man's switch got flipped. He's a receiver now. She's taking him away. She was here. What's the problem? I see people turn their heads and quickly look away. Like a newborn baby, it just happens every day. Don't be afraid of it, Daddy. No! Whatever door you open in my mind, I want you to shut it. Yeah, so, like, basic rundown of the plot. Uh, Stir of Echoes stars Kevin Bacon as a lineman, uh, you know, fixing telephone poles and whatnot uh, in a Chicago suburb. He has a wife played by Catherine Erb, who I think later became famous uh, because she was on Law and Order, um, or one of those iterations. Yeah, and uh, criminal intent. I right. There we go. Yeah, I didn't watch that, but I just know that's... Uh, I looked up her filmography later, and that's what I know. Um, yeah. Yeah, so they live in a Chicago suburb. Uh, they have a young son, and the movie starts out where their son is talking to some uh, unseen uh, entity. We don't really know what it is at first. And then when Kevin Bacon goes to a party, he volunteers to be hypnotized by his sister-in-law, Ileana Douglas, who is sort of like a flighty, uh, hippie-ish uh, type uh, person, it seems. Uh and when he's under, uh, he experiences these weird visions of a girl who seems to be, who seems like she's being murdered. And then after that, he starts like hearing voices, seeing a bunch of nightmarish visions, and he starts to think that he now has a connection to the afterlife involving this girl's murder, and he sets out to solve it. There we go. That's uh, we'll get into more depth right there, but that's just to give you a little bit on it. Uh, Star of Echoes released in the U.S. September tenth, nineteen ninety nine, but uh, it was in wide release. It went to one hundred eighty eight, hundred eighty eight, one thousand eight hundred eighty eight theaters. It was a budget of twelve million dollars. Its first week, it made five point eight million dollars. It went number three at the box office. It finished with twenty one million dollars domestically and twenty three million dollars worldwide. Put in marketing and whatnot, it was probably a good return on investment, although I'm sure, which we'll get into it, they were probably pretty upset with the sixth sense of it all. It was directed by, written and directed by David Kemp, who uh, wrote Jurassic Park, Spider-Man, Panic Room. 
He also relinked with Kevin Bacon last year with uh, You Should Have Left, which he also wrote and directed. I haven't seen that. Has anybody seen that? I have not. Was a co-writer of Carlito's Way and Snake Eyes. He's done some yeah. De Palma too. Yeah. De Palma's yep. thanked in the end credits of Star Echoes. He thanks um, De Palma, Soderbergh, and Andrew Heaven Walker, the screenwriter of Seven, uh, which is really uh, funny. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen You Should Have Left, but I have seen seen some of uh, Kep's other directorial efforts, including uh, Ghost Town with uh, Premium Rush, which I really liked <laughs> as a kid, and um, Ghost Town with Ricky Gervais, where he also sees dead people after having like a near death experience, and. Uh-huh. Um, uh, Mordecai, uh, which, you know, is its own thing. <laughs> oh, I was thinking of the other movie he made with Johnny Depp, which was Secret Window, which is, Haven't I'd seen say, that. more in the vein of this. Yeah, I saw it with my mom in theaters, and it was, like, during the winter, and I remember it was a, during a point where my mom just couldn't handle scary movies anymore, and she wore one of those big, puffy coats with a hood on it, and she looked like Kenny from South Park the entire time. <laughs> she just pushed the hood down to the point where she could barely see the screen which was very funny to me because i thought i was gonna be the scaredy cat in that movie but uh i don't remember it being a scary movie it's just john Turturro with a big hat you stole my story yeah yeah he's he's having fun in that movie uh brighton did you i know kevin you saw this before right yeah i saw this last year yeah and brighton this was your first time no i watched it i think i watched it like a Pretty much exactly last year. I think I was probably like in the mood for like scary movies and like thinking, oh, this one's like for free on one of my streaming services. And I like Kevin Bacon. I'll check this out. Uh, right. Yeah. So about Brian De Palma, why he's thanked, it said that he paid the set a visit and offered the director some ideas, one of which was shooting a long take of Kevin Bacon during the first half of a long dialogue scene, which I don't. Really good shot. That's a really good shot in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. But... yeah. And also, Andrew Kevin Walker did some script doctoring, but because of the like the DGA or writers, whatever, like it couldn't be credited, so he got a special thanks. Only like one more thing of trivia. One other thing we'll bring in afterwards, but another thing of trivia, which Bryden you told me about, is they were both shot in Chicago and both filmed by Fred Murphy. Yeah. He yeah. seems to have shot like he also shot Freddy versus Jason, which I also caught up with last week. Uh, so I so guess much he was fun. just like a late 90s early 2000s horror guy I guess. right right i guess i need to give freddy versus jason another shot because like this i hadn't seen it since i was a teenager but <laughs> um. it's it's not good but it's fun like i said in my letterbox review like i wish i would have seen this with a packed house when it came out because it would have been so much fucking fun mm-hmm. okay um let's talk about who's in this movie we got kevin bacon playing tom and prior to this he was in the masterpiece wild things um, yes <laughs> i fucking love wild things i watched wild things three times during quarantine because i'd never seen it before and then i just had to show people like how insane that movie was <laughs> you're like wow this twist is insane you're like wait until the other 30 <laughs> my roommate came in um my my former roommate came in during the first twist after the courtroom scene and uh-huh. I was like, wait what is this and then like was like okay i need to like actually watch this in full because this is insane <laughs> right i think i i watched that a few years ago and yeah i was just like i thought i was gonna put it on and be like this is gonna be so terrible and i was just like this movie's brilliant <laughs> it's so funny too it's yeah, so no. funny it's so funny nev campbell's it's- so good in it everybody's so good in it the and it's one funny my... too how Wild Things and Boaster of Echoes and Wild Things have spawned uh, direct-to-video sequels that don't feature the original cast members. Yeah. I think I have never seen those. Also, Denise Richards possibly her best role. <laughs> she's, she's very so, good in that. Either the, so 
Either that or Drop Dead Gorgeous. Oh, God, she's so good in Drop Dead Gorgeous. She's so good in that. Too. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I knew exactly what type of movie the Wild Things was when Denise Richards shows up at Matt Damon's house when he uh, <laughs> has his girlfriend over, and they're like, we're here to wash your car. Where's your hose, Mr. Lombardo? And the girlfriends <laughs> are like, Matt Damon, uh, Matt, uh, sorry, uh, Matt Dillon, not Matt Damon. Matt Dillon's girlfriend is like, are you really going to let them wash your car? And he just goes, oh, come on, it's for a good cause. And the camera's just like like closing in on like their white t-shirts. And I'm just like, oh, he knows exactly what that is trash. It yeah. knows exactly what you want. And it knows the genre that it's parodying. And yeah. I haven't seen any of the direct-to-video sequels. I did watch the trailer for Stir of Echoes 2 which apparently has Tom from this movie in it, obviously played by somebody else. But I think it said it was like originally called something else. I think they may have just made a character him and then just called it Stir of Echoes 2 and put it on the sci-fi channel. So weird. Like eight years later that sci-fi was just like, how about this? Because we're tired of playing the original movie on sci-fi every day. But I feel like was this movie, I couldn't find any info on like its video release because i feel like stir of echoes was a movie that yeah definitely it first of all it was released in 1999 where like i mean martin scorsese released one of his best movies bringing out the dead during this time and even that didn't make an impact so like uh Mm -hmm. but the sixth sense obviously overshadowed it also a better movie frankly uh but uh it, it does seem like one of those movies that everyone caught on video like i specifically remember being like put to bed so my parents could watch this movie uh, it was like which i remember those days it seems like that perfect kind of movie where like it is like a spooky movie for adults to just like take like it's not a cozy movie per se but it is that kind of like spooky campfire kind of plot that is right not too overly violent and not too like 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 just scary enough for mainstream audiences without ever like it, it, it you know it wants to be mainstream enough to appeal to everyone without like scaring off anyone who isn't a hardcore horror fan I guess. right yeah it's like a very soft r yeah. like it's it's very you know i i just, yeah i think it's sixth sense but also just like blair witch came out and then six six came out and then this came out all within pretty much a month like six Sense probably did fuck them on this but i think people are probably just horror movied out I mean, it's also, I gotta be honest, at least in my opinion, Blair Witch and Sixth Sense were much more influential and stand the test of time much more than... Oh, yeah. This one feels like much more of a time capsule because I was watching this and I was like, you know, they really don't make thrillers like this anymore. And even though I didn't love this movie by any means, I will admit that I liked how there's no fat and like every scene actually, for the most part, serves a purpose. I guess even the subplots that get dropped, they're at least like building, they're moving the plot forward in a way where like and there's certainly stuff they could have expanded upon and i'm sure we'll get into that but Mm -hmm. i don't really think they make thrillers like this anymore but i also wonder if it's like because it it is such a 90s film in terms of like just the way it's structured and the way it's shot and uh the themes that it's exploring i guess well yeah and also it's very 90s because that painted black cover that plays at the end So, so bad, bad. <laughs> so bad and it's used during one of the most crucial scenes of the movie and it's like uh, i feel like yeah. they i feel like they paid that band who the band's name is moist if that makes you feel better i feel like <laughs> they paid them for that song and then they were just like ah oh, fuck yeah. and also like where do we use it 
yeah, The Devil's Advocate also came out two years prior, and that ends with the actual version of Paint It Black, and I felt like that was more appropriate. Here it was, like, in a scene that we'll talk about, I'm sure. Uh-huh. Where they use it to blare out a murder, an assault that turns into a murder, and it's just the worst. Like, like just... why, why couldn't you just put it over the credits? Like... Yeah, well, so then maybe you, because Devil's Advocate just did that, but I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they kind of mess up the end credits on where it's like some like a very like lighthearted poster. It's like la 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 la. It's like kind of not the right tone that you want no, to end the movie no. on. But it's yeah. Um, because I was disappointed that we didn't get any social distortion because that's the T-shirt that uh, Kevin yes. Bacon's wearing. Yeah, to show that he's a cool guy. He's a cool rocker. guy. He's in a <laughs> band. Okay. Um, I guess before we get into the actual movie, as far as going beat by beat, you, Charlie, you kind of said how you kind of feel about it, but just like a quick reaction of what do you think of Sturvecos? Oh, me? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like I saw it 10 years ago or when I was a teen. No, more than that. I was a teenager and I was very underwhelmed by it. And now watching it again, I don't love it. I kind of had the same reaction, but I do feel nostalgia for these types of like lean thrillers that don't really get made anymore and aren't exactly i don't even think this movie's dumb i just think that it's it's not as fleshed out as it could be but like um for the most part i feel like you know uh, i i i liked how kevin bacon was a blue collar worker i like i especially love iliana douglas who is the mvp of this movie to me um the wife i think mostly act sane except for one crucial plot point that we will bring up that is like apparently she just forgot that happened like mm-hmm. after that scene happened yeah but uh and it also i guess it has to deal with the fact that there were a lot of movies in the late 90s and early aughts where female ghosts are communicating with the living and it's always for the same reason mm-hmm. and, avenge uh, me avenge me yeah and <laughs> i feel like this movie actually like it, it, I had a similar reaction to it as a teenager in terms of like where it was set up, what it was doing, and then the more that gets unraveled, the less interesting it becomes, and the more basic. It's not like bad by any means. Like it's a total like you have nothing to do, you might as well watch it type of film. But I don't right. think it's like you don't really kind of walk away feeling satisfied in any way, other than like oh yeah, it's just a very it's very much a product of its time which you know i miss 90s style thrillers and i watched a lot of them during quarantine purely for nostalgic reasons but yeah apart from the performances and some you know uh some uh effective uh moments uh i i yeah i also feel like it's kind of like all these movies that are put into a blender you have you know the kid who talks to you know the dead you have um, the Scatman Crothers, like, character from The Shining, you have, you know, looking in the mirror and kind of ripping your face off scenes in Poltergeist here, you have a lot of stuff that is all kind of feels like greatest hits in a way mm-hmm. that feels like a homage, but, like, David Kep is not, I feel like he's the type of person where you can take one of his scripts and if an auteur like De Palma or Spielberg or Fincher adapts it he can bring that to life in a way that is more interesting than his visual style which isn't bad per se but it's very like it's competent but it's not it's not anything you know entirely noteworthy if that makes any sense well yeah one thousand percent a lot of the shining also with the dynamic of 
Kevin Bacon and his wife definitely feels a lot like The Shining. And of course, the Scatman Crothers thing that popped up. And I was just like, oh, you're just you, you just you just you just watched The Shining last night, didn't you? Yeah, <laughs> literally a black character who goes up to the child and says, you have the gift. Like, yeah. It's the same thing. Yes. Yes. Oh boy. Okay. And there's nothing wrong with greatest hits. It's just if you're going to be a homage, I feel like you better like like De Palma riffs on Hitchcock all the time. That's what he's known for. But he has his own, you know, uh, uh, auteuristic style of long takes and split screens. And I feel like Kep just loves these movies. And it's not like anything's quote unquote bad, but it's just not like anything special. Right. Yeah. It definitely feels like he just. It's like, remember that part in The Shining? Let's do it instead of like, you remember Rear Window? Well, I want to take like the aspect of this and make it into my own, you know, stuff like that. So, Bryden, what do you think of Stir Echoes? I think it's just okay. Like, this is like a total like 6 out of 10, like, you know, rent it like off of like a free streaming service and everything. And yeah, yeah, I think it's it's very watchable, like scene to scene. Like I, I'm, I enjoy Kevin Bacon's performance. I like that he's kind of like a prickly presence, like throughout the movie and everything. Where like there is humanity to him, but also he is kind of an asshole. I think like uh, he plays that energy very well. Like there is like kind of like a seething resentment and bitterness, like under like even like his fake smiles and like his sort of like snarly laughs. Um, and I like some of the shots, although I think it's pretty uh, damning of like it kept uh, sort of functional uh nature as a director that like one of the most memorable shots in the movie where it's like the camera's pulling back from like bacon on like the telephone uh during the telephone operation uh as like he's being talked about how his mind is all open now to all these spirits from the outer world and like you know as the camera's pulling back it's sort of like emphasizing like how how vulnerable he is and everything like that's like a that's a really good shot but then like kevin said that like that's like de palma's influence just from visiting the sets like yeah okay that that shows that kev maybe is not like the most personality driven director um he's, he's a writer i don't know i did like kind of yeah. and yeah like there's like again watchable throughout but like it does like make there's like all these details that like are interesting but like i mean yeah you like the blue call you said you liked the blue collar uh, status of like the character and i think that is interesting like whenever a movie has like a character talking about like money troubles but i feel like they kind of just drop that it's w- just sort of window yeah. dressing at the start of the movie when like uh the wife like says oh yeah like he has like too many he's like used up all his sick days and everything and then they just like never really talk about it again i feel like a better movie um i really thought of and maybe it's a, a unfair thing to say but like because i just watched it recently and also it's a much later movie but take shelter i feel like kind of like uh does a better job of like looking right. at the working the working class anxiety uh the marital troubles and also like trying to give yourself a sense of significance and purpose by investing yourself in like this project that may or may not be worth the energy like whether it's real or not um I didn't even that's maybe a little unfair but uh because like again like but like i'm just thinking i don't know i just i feel like this movie does like have some unfulfilled potential i feel like i mean we'll get into it but it's it's okay. It's fine. I, and Bacon, I think, holds the movie together. His reaction shots throughout are very, uh, very fun to behold. I think. I stop rambling. He, uh, he no, has no, that amazing done. shot where he kicks the bucket and hits the window, and it's just fan fucking tastic. <laughs> because I love was... it when he finds the boot. Uh, when like he like he has the dream where he like finds the boot and then like sees the kid like shoot himself and then like he wakes up again. He's like, that boot better not be under there. And then like he <laughs> finds it. The music like goes dome. He's like. Uh oh! <laughs> it's like he plays yeah. like it's such like the world weariness is so real, but also so funny. It's great. Yeah, I just think it's fine. I do like the '90s of it all, even though the painted black cover is terrible. I kind of that's what I go to '90s movies for, and it's just. But Kevin Bacon's really good. You know, Catherine Eber, how, how do you say her name? Is it Herb? 
herb. Carly Kathleen Herb. She's fine. It's kind of just unwritten on her part, unfortunately. I think the kid is uh, fucking terrifying. I, I don't I don't like him. He's he's creepy. <laughs> and uh, Ileana Douglas and Kevin Dunn are a fun time. But yeah, it's it's just fine. And I also feel the same that Charlie, like whenever it wraps up, I'm just like, oh, that's what we're building towards. That's OK. I mean, like, I'm not saying it's not important what they're trying to avenge or anything, but it just kind of wraps up really quick and then they just move and that's pretty much it but let's get into what happens in this tom wetzke is a phone line li- phone lineman living in the working class neighborhood of chicago with his pregnant wife maggie and his son jake who possesses the ability to commune with the dead pretty much starts out i remember the kid in the bath talking to who we know is samantha and mm-hmm. kevin bacon playing guitar in the back because he's apparently in a quote shitty band which we'd never really pick up on again other than just him strumming on a guitar a few times. Yeah, he gives up on it when he finds out his wife is pregnant and he's going to like take on more shifts, he says. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, it's... And then the kid is... I can't tell you how fucking creepy this kid is. He, He's only... he's a, He was uncredited in The Wedding Singer and then he's in this and that's it. Hmm. yeah he's just creepy oh, oh yeah sh- that that, op- that opening is really creepy with like where it's just like the close-up of the kid and like you don't see who he's talking to but you know he's talking to someone and then like a custom reverse angle where it shows he's just talk- talking to an empty wall that's like that's like really like i i, I dunked a little bit on cap like as a visual stylist but i do think like that is like a pretty like well-crafted like subtly effective like low-key scare um and I also like the the sort of added touch of like Kevin Bacon being just sort of like blurry in the background, kind of like disconnected from his life and mm-hmm. not really showing his like that's sort of like he's disconnected from like everything else in his life and then just sort of like forces him to like take charge this ghost right. thing. Speaking of Kevin Bacon, we did we forgot to finish up on him. <laughs> um, Sorry and, about that. <laughs> no, no, no. It perfectly I just lost track. But year after this comes out he's in hollow man. He's also uncredited in Novocaine in two thousand one, which we'll be talking about. I had no idea that he was actually in it. Um, Jake, their kid, is played by Zachary David Cope, which I just told you he was in Wedding Singer and then this. And then Kathleen Erb plays Maggie, Tom's wife. Her first movie was What About Bob in 1991. She was also in Mistress America in 2015. This is definitely her biggest role. And then after this does 20 episodes of Oz, takes a decade off, and then like we were saying, has a role in Law and Order for like 120 episodes, just lives off of Law and Order. Uh, Ileana Douglas plays Lisa. That's Maggie's sister. She's in so many movies prior to this. Like she'd been in three Scorsese movies at this point. And she's also in Dummy 2002, which we will talk about soon. No, the Ileana Douglas thing I, I thought was so interesting and i think she's great in this movie is that she broke up with martin scorsese in 1997 and this movie came out <laughs> so her character is in the bar just being like too drunk not physically attractive like yeah. i just love that i'm like that probably was just Ileana douglas being Ileana douglas and i also uh god that we'll get into this plot point but i love that one point Kev- kevin bacon knocks on her door and she's like i'm sorry we just smoked this really fat doobie and it's taken me for a ride so this is all kind <laughs> of like <laughs> just you showing up like this is me- kind of just startling Ileana douglas is so underrated and i love her in pretty much everything and especially in the 90s i feel like she played lots of great parts that like if they didn't steal the movie they they stole the 
they she absolutely made an impact on the scenes that she was in, like Cape Fear, which is one of the most brutal things you'll ever see. Oh yeah, stuff yeah. Over in Cape Fear, uh, to die for. Which, I need to uh, watch that. Oh, it's one of Gus Van Sant's best films, and uh, her her role in that is it, it's a supporting turn, but it 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 totally uh, it, it, everything that she does in that movie is hysterical, and then something that she does in the end is just incredible. Uh, but yeah, um, she has those big eyes and that distinctive voice that no matter what, she's going to be noticed in a movie she's in. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see what happens next after the opening and we get the title card and all of that. We get pretty much uh, Tom and Maggie talking and and, um, also her sister's there. Lisa is there and she says that she knows that Maggie is pregnant because she's a witch or some stupid shit. Kevin Bacon says a line like, I just liked how your ass looked in jeans, which is okay. That's fine. Um, (laughs) They go to a house party down the street and they use the baby, baby monitor to still listen to this kid, even though he's like, six like i don't know why you'd still use a baby monitor but you use the baby to be monitor fair, the kid is creepy as hell well like, yes he's very fucking creepy that kid. Yeah. yes yes and they're strapped for money i guess like that's like the implication so like they can't afford a sitter maybe so like they have like the baby monitor just so they can like listen in on him without having to pay for a sitter maybe that's like the idea also that baby it. monitor has got some range because i think they're like they're like a few houses down it's not like they're like way down the street but still it's pretty good um Mm -hmm. so they go to this house party they meet kevin dunn who's frank i believe is his name and his son is like a football player and whatnot and there's all this is maybe i'm being ageist but i'm like y'all are like all middle-aged having a house party like i don't know but they're all there. I mean, I'm 30 and I'm still doing that shit, so I don't know. <laughs> I'd like to think that I would. I I don't know. Anyway. But it's all. <laughs> it's also Chicago and just like how um, uh, Kevin Dunn is talking about just how good the neighborhood is and all this stuff and because they talk about because he's definitely a working class guy and he's Kevin Bacon is talking about like I know you don't want to be with somebody who cuts wires all day and shit like that so it's very very tight knit community very blue collar stuff like that but I, I will say every time Kevin Dunn mentioned how it was a good town it made me chuckle because that's like half of his dialogue is literally <laughs> he has to explain why he's doing something because this is a good town like <laughs> it's almost like take a drink every time he says that but yes anyway. uh speaking of eliana douglas on the way to the party she says i won't look a gift boner in the mouth so that's a line that she says <laughs> um not sure what that means but i, kinda, I, I will say i kind of love that to the middle age thing i love that all the single middle-aged people and even the people who are together we don't get movies where adults are horny anymore and i did find that kind of refreshing that they were all just kind of like yeah, like fuck, man. Like we were, like I, I don't know. I just found that interesting. Where I'm like, you can't have dialogue like that anymore. Or no. you do, it's only for like plot purposes, as opposed to just these people are human beings who have sexual drives. Yeah, so. I was being a shit. You know, that's that's good that they're middle aged and they're not letting their kids keep them back from getting drunk and being put I, hypnosis. I, well, I kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. Like they have a kid, but they're not like 
to the point where they're just like sleeping in separate beds or like are tired of fucking i found that kind of interesting <laughs> yeah because uh his wife just wakes up in the middle of the night and she's like we're gonna fuck <laughs> and he's like i'm seeing dead people stop it you know <laughs> I, I will say like that is one thing that i was thinking about where i'm like i understand her intent but once she but she can't read his body language of like i'm still traumatized from what just happened and she gets mad at him about it and i'm kind of like well <laughs> he was like, like i get like he was like, I was crying and screaming, and y'all put a fucking pin in my hand yeah, and whatnot. A, yeah, like, I clearly am suffering from a traumatic moment, and I'm not saying, like, her idea of having sex with him is a bad idea, but once he's not into it, it's like, well, stop, and don't take it personally. Like, Right. <laughs> well, because I think he says, like, no, it's just bad, and she's like, thanks. He was like, no, I wasn't talking about you, I was talking about, you know, the stuff. But he says, I feel like I was being attacked. And she's like, gee, thanks. I mean, oh, that's, like the, that's not right, the first time right. that he's, I mean, he, I, I, of course, like he has like the right to like say no, but like, he does like express like a lot of uh, things badly. Like when, like he's first told that she's pregnant, he's like, bummer. Like, <laughs> like, he says the wrong yeah. thing a lot of the time. He's, he's yeah, not great at expressing his emotions. Cause he's a man. Well, the, the thing yeah. that's the weakness in the script for me is that the wife has every right to be annoyed, but it's almost like she forgets certain things that have happened before then. Like, right. As, 1, if, as if like, as if like one of the men in black just like, completely brainwashed her from a scene before and it's not like she doesn't have any right but it's all but the movie is i feel like trying to put them on the same level and instead it just kind of comes off as like well you're just tone deaf or you just have memory loss or something because i don't yeah i don't know if we'd learn if she has a job or what she does for work i think she's a nurse because she's wearing scrubs yes right? Yeah, you're right. When she brings home the groceries and finds that he's digging up the yard, and again, like uh, that's kind of like where like her role in all this is kind of weird. I, it's partly the writing, but also the performance, where she's just sort of like sees her yard being dug up by her son and her husband. She's like, okay, and it's like kind of like a weird. <laughs> you guys, and yeah. it's like it's kind of it doesn't fit quite the re the tone of the reaction that like a a regular person would probably have, where to be like what's happening why why is yeah. my shark being dug up that's concerning yeah and you and you brought up take shelter bride and like the jessica chastain character is very much concerned all the way through the more insane her husband gets and like it's almost played for comic relief in ways where it's just like yeah you've i mean we haven't gotten to certain plot points yet so i think we should keep going with that before i say yes else. but yeah it, her character's inconsistent i guess Right. Okay, so next up, at a party one evening, Tom challenges Maggie's sister Lisa, who is a believer in paranormal activity, to hypnotize him. And he leans in and goes, what's the worst that could happen? And I was just like, that's a Martin Lawrence movie. But after putting him under, Lisa plants a post-hypnotic suggestion in Tom, urging him to, quote, be more open-minded. But of course, that door opens up to bad things. Tom then begins experiencing visions of a violent scuffle involving a girl who he later learns is Samantha Kozak, a 17-year-old that disappeared from the neighborhood six months prior. Yeah, so what what that description doesn't say is, yeah, there's after they after he gets put under, which is a really, really cool scene, where yeah. it goes into the, she says, a picture of an empty movie theater, and there's nothing in there, and it's just a white, and then it says, like, what does it say? Does it say wake? or so sleep sleep and then the second one says yeah. dig that's right and then he snaps out of it and apparently like what we didn't see is that he started crying and sweating and they put a safety pin in his hand because they told him to and kevin dunn is like remember that kid who used to beat your ass when you were 12 and he was just like i just i just want to go home and then they go home they're in bed i don't think i don't think he's asleep or i think he's like 
you know, still traumatized by the thing. Maggie initiates sex with him and he's just like, yo, I'm seeing people being suffocated. Can we please stop? Uh, Ileana Douglas says that only 8% can be hypnotized, so he's special. He then goes into the bathroom and pulls out his tooth and then realizes this is all in his head. He, I think right after this, he calls Ileana Douglas while he's on the, while he's doing his phone repair stuff. And she's like, yeah, I planted a door, which means people can come in. But of course, that means creepy stuff can come in. We learned that Samantha is the ghost in the house and everything like that. Uh, I think we're pretty much caught up. So, yes. I also love that in that scene that Ileana Douglas is like, oh, I'm still in bed and I can't I can't deal with this one. Like she has like perfect hair and makeup. It's like, I know <laughs> it's like and, and Ileana Douglas is a beautiful woman and I love looking at her in this movie. It's just funny to me that she was just like, I can't. I'm too hungover. And it was like, you look like you just blow dried your hair out of this it's also, also like a very stereotypical, like sort of like flighty person's like apartment where it's like, like curtains are on the bed and also yeah. art easels leaning up there and she right. smokes pot and has candles <laughs> i can't get out of the bed it. until i have caffeine like yeah, yeah. she's cool Go we ahead. should also probably are we gonna talk about the liza will scene yes find out about samantha yes yeah paris geller herself paris geller herself yes so i think maggie is on the phone with somebody and the kid is being creepy and is like you should call so-and-so to call debbie and she's like what how do you know this? You're five. And then she calls Debbie and she's like, that's weird, I guess. Um, you're five. How do you know, like, teenage girls? But she shows up <laughs> and there's this really weird effect where Kevin Bacon and uh, I keep I keep going back from names to actor names, so my bad. But Tom and Maggie are going to leave to go to a high school football game with Kevin Dunn and his wife. He's looking at paris geller she doesn't have a name her name is paris geller lies a while <laughs> but every time he looks at her it turns red and a negative and it's like Broom. and it's yeah, and like a buzzing never, sound and that effect is never ever used again it's only for like those few moments where she enters the house yeah like, it's it's very strange how you think that's going to play into the visual scheme of things and it just never comes back well yeah. then when they're leaving and he starts seeing red everywhere which red sure lights red, red. and then like there's like a red traffic light shot like i think in the climax in the movie you see like a red traffic light through the windshield i'm like is that a callback to the yeah the yeah red but that, yeah, it's, it's it's only for that one sequence which is weird they're like the color red like and then it's just like but it's only for that stretch of like maybe not even 10 minutes of screen time it's very strange how that is a trigger for him and then that just goes away i, I don't know yeah it's it's kind of funny because it's so out of left field that it kind of makes no sense and it's just funny like kevin bacon looking at her as he's leaving and she's looking at him and then it's just like (laughs) (laughs) but okay so paris geller's there the kid jake is upstairs they pretty much say like hey you're just house watching like he's gonna be asleep whatever she's reading the shrinking man which is by richard matheson who wrote a stir of echoes Mm -hmm. So I wrote that down and I was just like, I wonder if that's connected to anything. And then I looked at him. And I was like, oh, cool. But it's, a, it's an Easter egg. Yeah. So Tom, his wife and Kevin Dunn are going to the high school football game. He's seeing all of these red lights and whatnot. He knows something's weird. I don't know why it seems like this high school football game is attended by everybody in Chicago all at once. 
and there's only one entry and everybody's like packed in like sardines trying to get in and he pretty much is like having this anxiety attack or something and then he sees through his visions or whatever that Periskeller is really upset about Jake talking about Samantha and she's really upset how do you know Samantha all the stuff and then she's like oh we're going and she takes him and leaves and then that's where Tom is like Jake's Jake's being taken away and then they go home they try to find her. She's not there. <laughs> There's a really great line where he starts running away and Maggie's like, where are you going? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so Debbie Periskeller lies a while, goes to the train station and apparently her mom works at the train station, which, which is such a contrivance because it is like that thing of like, she's taking her somewhere. No, her mom just happens to work there. <laughs> like, oh my God. It, it just, you know that they just had to be like, well, she has to meet up with her mom. Where's a place that could cause suspense? What if she was at a train station? Like that type of thing. Yeah. And also considering that David Kep also co-wrote Carlito's Way, a stupid part of my brain would be like, that would be really funny if they're like on an escalator and then Al Pacino's just like on the escalator, <laughs> like avoiding like everyone. And then that chase scene is happening around. <laughs> like, but anyway. <laughs> oh boy. That, that would be great. A Carlito's Way extended universe. But <laughs> it very much takes place in Penn Station in New York, that set piece in Carlito's way. But it just my brain is just broken anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so they're there. They for some reason find her and she was like, Mom, Mom, he keeps talking about Samantha. And it was just like people have the name Samantha, not just your missing sister. Like, but anyways, it and then her mom is just like, she's been missing for six months. And then she pulls out a photo. And she's like, look at the photo. Look at me and Samantha. Do you know this kid? Do you know him? And Jake doesn't say anything. And then the police is like, hey, you should look at the photo. And I was just like, cops don't act like this, but that's fine. Yeah, no, I thought the exact same thing where I was just like, what are what are you talking about? They literally said they kidnapped their kid. Cops would not give a shit about this <laughs> this woman screaming look at the photo they'd be like cuffing her at this point yeah (laughs) and she is very erratic and they're just like is that your kid no he's like hmm okay well um he's just very understanding but kevin bacon is like no i don't i don't know who that is and they walk away but well his wife wants to press charges and he's like no it's fine and then they walk away he's like that's the fucking ghost i saw in our house and it's just like you know we didn't touch on that but yeah there's a scene where he wakes right after he pulls out his tooth he sees uh samantha on the couch really quick like as a ghost ghostly figure one touch i did like is that they immediately put the connection to well why did you hire her and it was like well because he was saying uh our son was saying you know hire like this name and then oh and then what i find to be interesting but also frustrating is that the wife automatically believes kevin bacon and there's not like like she acts like rational within this type of genre of movie of like oh wait i'll listen to you and then clearly sees that her son is like not all there and is hearing voices but isn't like 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 she plays along in a way that isn't like the the wife who just won't listen to anything and it's just like we need to press charges but then later scene seems to forget all of this like yeah like, like it doesn't make any sense it's frustrating in the way that it's like some scenes she's written well for this type of role in this genre in a way that isn't frustrating and then is frustrating in other ways as if she just has memory loss so yeah yeah, yeah i mean 
that that's why I was also thinking her character is so like especially when she takes the kid away after he's digging and whatnot and then like an hour later she's like i miss you so much i'm sorry we fought i'm gonna go pick you up right now he's like what no yeah, yeah. <laughs> well because because he like he says like her grandmother dies which he knows about because like he says like she says like oh my grandmother's in the hospital he's like no 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 she's not and then like he like cuts himself off and then she gets to call grandmother's dead he knows because like he can see dead people and whatnot and then she says like oh like i have to go to the we're going to the funeral it's like uh do i have to come and then like she like gets mad at him and everything and then like yeah yeah that's the scene that's the thing that's frustrating is like even kevin bacon can't put this aside and like and i get that this is the point and this is it it, it felt more like a plot contrivance of anything so kevin bacon can be doing his thing and she has to be away like the grandmother dying doesn't really have to do with anything it's apart from her saying like she practically raised me it's more of a plot device so that whenever he's in, in danger yeah yeah, yeah a pivotal point and it's also supposed to i guess show that like kevin bacon is also being a selfish asshole who can't put this one thing aside for a day at a funeral this man like, has to <laughs> dig okay he and has his, to his dig. motivation for solving the mystery like changes from scene to scene like he's like like initial i mean i'm jumping ahead a little bit but like when he goes to an Eliana douglas douglas at one point and says like get this fucking thing out of me i do not want to be seeing dead people anymore and then he goes under i guess the dig message and then i guess like that's just enough for him to want to keep solving the mystery but it's like yeah but like, like but like what is it yeah yeah previously he's acting like i don't really give a crap about this dead girl and everything like but then like all of a sudden it's like the only thing he cares about and it's like we maybe needed like another scene or something where he's like where like he's coming to terms with like why he wants to do this i um, guess I, it, yeah oh i'm sorry brendan i interrupted you no i was just gonna say i do i do kind of like how much bacon kind of his character sucks in this movie i do think like that lends it a bit of interesting tension i don't know i guess i'm just maybe as i'm getting older i like characters who are kind of like irritable and i think it also just like lends a, a bit of spiky energy to the performance where he is like even when he's like you know like, getting like trying to interact with his son is he's like being very kind of insistent and like a very hostile kind of like, right just, like, that's you know, the like, next scene hands. like and that's like yeah like that's i i do like find that gives the movie a bit of an edge but um I don't know if the movie necessarily interrogates it. That no, way. no. Uh, I, I, it is that thing too, where it's like, okay, I can't get this thing. I guess it's just supposed to assume that you're, he's like, get this thing out of me. And then when it's like, okay, I can't get this thing out of me. I have to dig. But like the character themselves, I don't want them to say it out loud. I, but it is, it does make it inconsistent with like, he immediately went to, I don't want, I don't care. I'm not committed to, I'm fully committed now. And you're just supposed to make that leap of, he just wants to get it out of him. But instead of saying, I just want to get this out of me, he goes from, this is the most important thing in my entire life. And it's just like, really? Because he really didn't give a shit. Like a few scenes ago, <laughs> yeah. like he really didn't care. So if it wasn't like, if he didn't say, look, I just want this thing out of me. I have to dig. Instead, he just pulls a 180 and it doesn't make any sense. So I, I will say the fact that the son is also digging, I was like, well, that's not smart to have your kid also be digging for a dead body but i do love the throwaway joke of like he's not gonna find anything he's fine like like it's a, he's like five he can't dig that far <laughs> yeah and i i think that's like again it's an interesting thread that the movie doesn't really you know uh expand upon but like the the fact that the son is the only th person who has like the connection like there's like the shot that i really like where the son is like standing over bacon like slumped over on the staircase he says it's okay dad like it's just like the ghost doesn't like want to hurt you or something like that and, like he's like how he's how like, does like, he like, have this power i i, I don't know but i i do like that they have i mean that might have been interesting uh, to know how he has that power but like he like 
he like i like that they have that shared connection it's almost like he's the grown-up in that shot where he's like you know just sort of comforting his dad and then like you know the wife Catherine herb like talks about how like they're like you know having like their own like secret club almost that she's left out of well we don't really see that in the rest of the movie again it's like the movie like kind of just like papers over a lot of this stuff where it's just like character developments happen off screen and then like things and like the character development that we do get like it's like just spoken about in dialogue and then kind of just like that's all we get really like one yeah line. yeah there was a apparently a deleted i don't know if it was a deleted scene or it was or it was taken out of the script before they shot it but apparently uh how tom and maggie met in the original script was he was a lifeguard and he had uh he was able to foresee that she was gonna drown and that's how they met so it's hmm. so it's it's taken out but it's it's meant to imply that like he passed this on to his son when he was born and also the alternate ending to this was they have the baby at the end and the daughter has the same power that he has but that's not in the movie at all that's also a weird thing like why is why does her being pregnant what does that have to do with anything nothing like, at all because she does not look pregnant nothing happens with her being pregnant besides like well, the first does the movie take place across like i mean that's like a little bit unclear i guess like i mean when she goes to see the the guy who they meet at the cemetery like he asks like how long has he been having these visions he says a few days so i guess <laughs> yeah. it's like maybe the movie takes place across like a week or something i don't know it's yeah. a little unclear and then and then like it makes sense when she's freaking out because she's like he's been t- he's gonna lose all of his sick leave like that would make sense especially for a blue collar worker and that would make sense why she's so stressed out right but everyone's acting as if he needs to get over it and it's like it's been a few days like trauma lasts a lifetime like let alone a few days jesus christ like right it just everything is just weirdly inconsistent in this movie to a point where like i'm like i love how real these people are being too are they but are they being real in this type of genre? Like, like if they're like, not like I need everyone in a genre movie to act like, cause usually it's weirdly, I guess the thing is like, usually people are either completely ignorant or completely invested. And this is like characters switch sides on a scene to scene basis, which is just yeah. strange. Right. After they find the kid and bring him home, the kid like has somebody talk to talk through him and says like, then like there's a deep voice and it's like you talk to me and i was yeah, like what he's like don't talk to her talk to me yeah. that's like the voice the story <laughs> kind of goes i mean it's like meant to be creepy but it's like hilarious yeah and then it's he's so just funny. like what what'd you say what'd you say and maggie's like yeah. stop he's like no no what'd you say say it again say it again. He, he doubles down like 15 times on it um there's another football game like tailgating is esque event and whatnot and it shows like a town barbecue yeah kind of like that and it shows everybody and then there's a brilliant wipe to kevin bacon just looking haggard as fuck being like you ever heard about samantha (laughs) there's like a record scratch sound i think (laughs) that's like soundtracks the whip it's It's so so funny uh apparently uh, it's discussed in the scene tom hasn't left the house in a week he's missing work Ileana Douglas says that Maggie should get a hot priest and I wrote down maybe Luke Wilson from Soul Survivors and yep (laughs) (laughs) Tom has a nightmare where Kevin Dunn says they're going to kill them and then he walks down the street and walks into uh, Kevin Dunn's house and sees his kid pull a gun out on him and shoot himself in the side Um, what is this kid's name Adam I think is the kid's name Yeah, Adam right Um, and then he wakes up and then he doesn't see Kevin Dunn in his house, which is a creepy sight to behold. But he sees other things that match up, so he immediately runs 
to uh, Kevin Dunn's house because he hears a gun go off, breaks the window, gets in there, and Adam shoot. It actually did shoot himself, so he did foresee that. Everybody's coming home and whatnot, and Maggie takes their kid and is like, oh, we're going to go on a walk. And then they walk into a cemetery. There's a funeral happening and whatnot. Um, there's a army guy or something or another sees Jake, waves to him. They're walking around, and then this army guy who's 1,000% just Scatman Crothers from The Shining, and it's just like, your kid has the x-ray eye and knows his name. The kid knows his name. The army guy's like, you'll have to... You have to have your dad call me because it's with him, but it's not with you, Maggie, or something like that. The mom is leaving. She says she's going for a movie and like, oh, yeah, the kid is just like, hey, dad, you should play the guitar like this. And he's like, where the fuck do I know that song? And I don't think that actually resolves itself. I don't think because no. right. In the, no, right- no, it, 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 I think it does, because remember, he's like listening to he's trying to figure out where he knows the song from. And he's like going through all the CDs and he's mm-hmm. like, guys, headphones locked in. He's locked into his own world and ignoring his wife. And then is it supposed to be is it supposed to be painted black? That he's that's playing? What because I that's the song that he's playing. It doesn't sound like it in the moment, but like, yeah, I mean, that's the only thing I could think of of how it links to like the visions he's seeing and the sounds that he's hearing. That's that's my guess. So she says she's going to a movie. She's actually going to see Neil, the guy from the cemetery. She brings a knife which comes into play later. Neil knows everything that's happened to Tom says Samantha is waiting to be helped. So she goes home. I don't, she doesn't even tell Tom about it, right? She just goes no, straight I, to take a shower. I, I do want to talk about this scene. A little yeah. Bit. Okay, this yeah. Scene did kind of put me off a little bit, like how like she is shown taking a knife and then it just so happens that the neighborhood she's going to has a lot of like black passerbys like that she's going by. And it's like, is this like, uh-huh. Like it, it kind of like makes it almost look like a weird kind of othering where there's like a jump scare where she goes down a dark alley and like a guy like runs up a fire oh. escape. There's all this graffiti. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it, it's, it's just it's, kind of it's bad racial stereotypes. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah, mean, and, yeah, it's, maybe, it's out of a Stephen King, and I love Stephen King, but he's known for having these you know black mystical prophets or whatever. It it, it it felt like that out of me. I mean, the Green Mile came out the same year that does the same thing. You know, like it's it's. And look, maybe it's like a commentary of like how like maybe it's like a, some like poking fun at this character, Catherine Herb's character, how like she is like, you know, maybe a white woman from like a predominantly white neighborhood, like a suburb and everything. Maybe that's like, I don't know, maybe it's realistic that her character would w- like with that kind of sure, like, would have sure. those kind of prejudices or whatever. But the movie doesn't do anything with it. No, it, it's not it's not kind of feeds into it. No. Yeah, it's not interested in it. It's just a plot device. I mean, it's just othering. It's very weird. And it, yeah. Putting. It has so much, it's so plot driven and there's no fat in terms of like, like there's, what's weird is there's a lot of subplot fat, but there's no fat in terms of moving the plot along. It's just that it doesn't care about examining anything other than just keeping the gears moving forward. I mean, like the working class, like with like the working class anxiety and like the marital troubles, it's all window dressing. Like you think it would make for a more interesting movie, but it's just like, it's pretty much just dropped or like, you know, just like kind of like moving the gears along the plot. Also, the like black, that black character is a cop and he's got this like weird underground thing. Like, where he's like living it, it, with like 10 people that are like, who the fuck's at the door? And he's like, they don't yeah. want you in here either. It's just like, what? It's so, like totally inconsistent. Like, like, but the movie's not interested in examining. E- he doesn't even have a line of dialogue that can be like, you can't let my job know. But like anything. Yeah. It's just weird. Yeah. Yeah, and like it also just like hints at like a more interesting movie where like you're like thinking, wait, what is going on in that world? Like a world of yeah. people like who all like live in this alleyway, like where they can see That'd the dead. Like that sounds like an interesting movie. That'd and then they just like no, forget and, it. It's just let's just focus on Kevin Bacon's line man, who's only like 
kind of like tangential. I mean, at the end of the movie, he's not even. It makes you wonder why is Bacon the one seeing the visions? I mean, it's his house that the murder happens in. I guess it's, like jumping ahead, but like it's like why? Like that's really the only reason he has no real like. Um, he has no real skin in the game. I guess it's no, kind of no. But but yeah. but my big complaint about Catherine Herb's character going on is like she completely forgets that she did this, that she went to this place after this person said your child has the gift, and then saw all this stuff going on, and then it's as if her character just never went there because everything following this which we'll get into is like her just kind of throwing her hands up in the air and being like why is he being like this and it's like well you already you know, know you know you know and you don't bring and it you, up at all you know you bought it like that was what was frustrating is like after the train incident where she was like oh crap our son mentioned this babysitter's name and then witnessed the kid being weird and then it's like oh, okay, so she's actually, like, listening and buying this. She's not being ignorant. And then she's ignorant for the rest of the movie. It's like, what? Like, I, I, I don't understand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, one line that I thought was really funny from Neil, the cop who can who has, like, the connection and everything, the x-ray vision, uh, when he's asking about, like, her husband seeing visions, I love this succession of questions. He asks, like, well, how long has it been going on? And then he says, like, was it a car accident? No. Uh, you know, did the child die? No. He's like, did he kill someone? Like, I just love, like, the rest <laughs> yeah. escalation of, like, circumstances. Also, nobody, I get that it's 1999 and we weren't talking about mental health as we are now, but, like, even Ileana Douglas's character is like, we are talking about a ghost here and not one person mentions maybe he needs therapy, maybe he needs, like, to deal with trauma in any yeah. way. They're all just kind of like, ah, suck it up. Like, you know, Ileana Douglas, who is the most sane character who knows what's going on and knows that her, like, form of mythology is correct even she isn't like maybe he should get help like like i know i'm a witch and everything but i also believe in like this stuff like nobody mentions any they're just like ah eh, whatever and i get that the, it you could argue like well it's a blue collar job they couldn't afford therapy but the movie doesn't even bring that up they could have done right. that in, like, a throwaway line like, she's also the antagonist of this movie this is all her fault <laughs> like not not really but i mean if she wouldn't have done this, we wouldn't have found Samantha's murder, but she's just like, yeah, he's seeing stuff. Well, ugh. if she hadn't done this, that kid would be like in an institution or something. Like <laughs> yeah. it would just be a movie about like what's wrong with our son is basically it. Yeah. Like that's, the, they would just be like, ugh, we can't afford these like medical bills or something. Right. Yeah. Okay. After she talks with Neil, she comes home, has a shower and the movie. She's like, we need to see her naked for some reason. And then for some reason that was weird. Yeah. yeah. Apparently she's in the bathroom. Samantha sees her. She can't, uh, Maggie can't see Samantha. The water goes from hot to cold really fast. And she goes downstairs to fix the pilot light. The kid is watching the mummy shroud. Uh, Samantha shows up in the TV and, keeps trying to make him watch night of the living dead for some reason it's like not scary it's actually really fucking funny <laughs> yeah um she goes he's just annoyed about it more like he's just like stop changing the channel like, trying to watch <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah he's not terrified at all <laughs> yeah she she goes to light the pilot light um i think like samantha like fucks with the the light bulb down there to try to make it scary tom's seeing more visions of of samantha and he's not sleeping anymore he goes back to lisa and demands she undo what she did but when she hypnotizes him samantha tells him to dig tom complies and starts digging holes in the backyard eventually tearing up the house in an attempt to appease samantha now another things that happen is during the scene whenever maggie comes home and whatnot this is like the most shining scene because kevin bacon feels so much like jack nicholson in the scene like he had a line he's like as you can see i'm very busy right now okay like 
just straight straight shining right there waving and, his arms like yeah, yeah. gesticulating and laughing sort of like you know why don't you tell someone i'm, I'm really going to see how it sounds again as i commented before it would make sense if he's just like look this i keep getting visions and i just want them to go away instead he has this self where he's of self-righteousness where he's like this is the most important moment of my life and it's like wait really like where did this come from if and like and maybe that's <laughs> damn that's sad movie. <laughs> yeah like and and i agree with her when she's like well when you say my life you mean our life and what the fuck am i supposed to deal with that but it doesn't uh-huh. and maybe that's supposed to be the movie commenting on like masculinity and not wanting to open up about stuff probably but, yeah. like but like the wife already knows everything you're going through this isn't anything that you're hiding from her yeah like if it was all hidden this would make sense because he'd be like well my wife will think i'm crazy instead she's seen everything before and even has seen stuff that she has not revealed to him about the supernatural power right so like it doesn't make any sense it's just convoluted and weird and then of course what she gets annoyed but yeah as bryden pointed out before where she's like oh i guess i won't be cleaning that up when he she sees the mud tracks going through it's like well of course your husband's like dealing with trauma and is clearly mentally ill and you're just kind of like i have to do my wifely duties yeah yeah yeah. like i guess i'm not cleaning that up and it's just kind of like so you act like human beings and then you don't like it's just weird Uh, yeah yeah (laughs) maggie's grandma dies kevin bacon is the dirtiest man ever in the scene kicks a bucket and it hits that hits the upstore's window which apparently that was unscripted and that was not a break <laughs> that was not a breakaway window so they just kept it in everything like that maggie he's also guzzling a lot of minute made orange juice <laughs> so he's like, he's, he stocks the what? fridge with all the what? orange juice he pours two glasses and he says like, pours one for you're gonna drink it like, yeah. <laughs> what's up with that it's like it's alcohol well, it, it, would be, it would be better if it was alcohol because he shoots it like a shot of tequila it's like what what is this all about well, why minute made orange juice i don't is know why to be like i don't know why that particularly but when he first gets hypnotized and comes out of it. He's like, I'm so thirsty and like chug something. So maybe all these visions just like make him like insane. It takes so much out of him that it makes him thirsty. But maybe minute made orange juice. Why? Because it's not fucking water? delicious. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, like she just like she, man. <laughs> she just like walks in, and opens the fridge. There's nothing but minute made. She's like, that's strange. Like if I came home, that was it. I would I would lose my mind like. She, she, yeah, like, like we've said numerous times, she just doesn't make sense in this movie, but she's also a nurse. So you think that she would, I don't know what type of nursing she's practicing in, but you'd think that she'd be used to like some sort of like, I don't know, medical, like, you know, you probably deal with people who aren't all medical, like mentally there. And instead she's just kind of like, ugh whatever like like uh, yeah it's just strange it's so strange so weird so maggie takes the kid away after kevin bacon's like wait do you want me to actually come with your come with you to the wake and she's like you dick then we go to the wake maggie apologizes saying she's gonna pick up tom and he's like no 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 no. he's digging inside the house now he's in the basement he starts breaking the concrete of the floor and then he accidentally hits this old wall and then samantha's corpse is in there 
yeah, I, I do think it's really funny, the shot when, like, he's on the phone and he's saying, like, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry about this. She's just like, well, why don't I come get you? He's like, no, 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 don't come. And then, like, the camera pans past the walls and shows he's t- torn up, like, the floor of his house <laughs> and everything. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, just, like, all these inexplicable things just keep piling up that he can't explain throughout the and whole he, movie. He's also it's... looking up at the ceiling and, like, like kind of laughing maniacally at times. <laughs> he's listening. Like, Where is this coming from? <laughs> he gets the jacket. I mean, I love how Bacon throws himself into the performance where he's just screaming <laughs> yeah. and laughing while, like, jackhammering. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or is it, is it supposed to be like, oh, I'm so insane right now, but it's also like this character just serves whatever, it, it's not really any concrete form of psychology for anyone, it just serves no, the purpose no, no, of whatever no. scene they're in for dramatic weight, and it isn't consistent at all. Yeah, and it is super funny that like he discovers the body by accident when he like, he's like hitting like the, the floor below him, but then he accidentally bumps into the wall behind him and then the body falls like, yeah, perfectly, yeah. Okay, can we, his way through it. Can we also talk about this? Okay, I know that uh, let's just part say this is part of the plot. He finds the body. Uh-huh. That body looks like it's been mummified for years. <laughs> years. <laughs> years. And I just, I, my mind immediately went to this opening scene of Sicario where they find like 40 dead people like, in like, the walls. Horses, yeah. And they're all like still decomposing and their, their bags are filled with blood. And I'm like, this looks like something that was like, <laughs> like, like she has also, I'm sorry, but she has the glasses on and only one tooth and it looks like something out of Tales from the Crypt. Like, it is it, not yeah. dramatically... Because it's It been... does not dramatically work at all. It looks so goofy. <laughs> yeah, because um, they said that she disappeared, like, six months ago. Um, six months ago! And it looks like she's been there for at least a decade. Like... <laughs> <laughs> uh, and none of them... I mean, it's behind a wall, but nobody, like... It would be, like, a, a cool little throwaway line if they were just, like... If you notice something smelling, you know, like rotting flesh in the basement you know you ever smell that yeah yeah that's the other thing is like it would fucking reek like it it, it looks like i mean that that's the thing is like it it doesn't make any sense at all okay so and you also do get like kind of like the when he finds the body like the sort of speed sped up zoom in shot that feels like a late very late 90s early 2000s technique i think we even get like a couple of those shots in like soul survivors where like a character has like a really shocking revelation and like the camera just like like just sort of remember remember the tv show dead zone whenever he would touch somebody and it would be like zoom like that's exactly (laughs) what this is also taking yeah exactly but also like the other thing i thought of is like well this movie already has an r rating they're saying fuck all the time there's nudity there's even or like shots of Kevin Bacon witnessing like you know her fingernail falling off and that scene yeah like that's some gnarly stuff so I was like were you just scared to be like gruesome because like why you already have gruesome shit in this movie why does this look like a dummy you bought at like the Halloween outlet like yesterday right like like we just strange yeah like we said it's a very light R rating it's like it's not gonna offend anybody it's very very tame for an R rating like it's not gonna go gruesome like anything else or anything but let's but it still has characters shooting themselves and like smearing blood all over there that's that's scene of rules yeah that is true but that's like the one like shock scene like if that was yeah. if that was like the whole movie because like you know this movie like is really like going for like kind of a middle-aged audience who like grew up on kevin bacon because there's really nobody else like he's the He's the movie star of it, so it definitely makes sense why people would want to see him for him. And it's just, he can't really be in that gruesome I, of a movie, I guess, I, or something. I don't I, know. I, 
just the glasses on that dummy just took me so out of it. Like, we have to keep the glasses on her. It's like, like, I get that, like, that can be used as evidence, but when you have a dummy that fake and the glasses are just so securely on her ears, it's like, it's not even on the floor. Wouldn't that, like, right. <laughs> when her body decomposing, like, just, like, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> oh, and also, I, I don't know if we brought this up. Um, the the actress playing the Samantha is Jennifer Morrison, who like later became like a, another TV actress. She was on House, and she had like a recurring role in How I Met Your Mother. She was on that show Once Upon a Time. I mean, she's like this is probably like oh. one of her first roles or something. She's in like a lot of stuff. She um, directed a movie. She did. Yeah, it's called uh, Sun Dogs from 2017. It was put on Netflix. Uh, really, um, really. I remember she directed an episode of Euphoria as well. Um, Oh, that's interesting. Allison Janney's in it, Exhibit's in it, so that's a good time. Um, but yeah, she was in Star... Allison Janney and Exhibit? Yeah. I've never heard of this. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Those are two people I would never expect to be paired together. <laughs> She's also uh, Kirk's mom in the original Star Trek movie. Not the original, but the 2009 Star Trek movie. So yeah, oh, I didn't know that either. Abrams. Yeah, I didn't know this. She was also in Once Upon a Time. Now that we're mentioning her, we should probably talk about the scene, which I think is the best scene in the movie where he touches her all dead zones into her it shows this woman and it shows this guy which he's been seeing uh scenes of this guy from the stoop calling out to somebody so we now finally see that telling he's the son of the landlord who's renting that who's like has who rented the house to kevin bacon um, yes we've like seen it like the barbecues and like the town halls his son is like friends with kevin dunn's son yes That's yes like how they know each other. Uh, i think harry harry's his name and his son is kurt I believe mm -hmm. Kurt is the one who actually does kill her. But um, Frank's son, Kevin Dunn's son is the one who lures her in. And, you know, they, I guess they're trying to play a joke on her that kind of goes wrong, but they also look like they're trying to gang rape her. Um, it seems like they're trying to assault her. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's like, I, I think it's uh, the landlord's son, uh, Kurt, who like is like making uh, Adam uh, like, who's kevin dunson like try to like you know like get get up the courage i guess to drink and everything he's like it's clearly like he's the the dominant one in this like friendship or whatever and then it turns into a rape uh pretty quickly and then like what she starts screaming and like you know like tearing fingernails and everything and then they put on paint it black that's like the song they turn on to Ugh. like bl block out the noise uh -huh. and then uh kevin dunson like puts like the plastic cover over her that's like the thing that kills her and then like as like you get like this sort of pinhole effect of like you know her perspective as she's like slipping away like mm -hmm. dying and everything you hear like the one guy said like great thinking adam like with the like the the plastic wrap and everything now she's fucking dead and everything it's, yeah and then, yeah they also weirdly i don't know this isn't important but it's weird to me because they make a point of it as if it's supposed to be important they say first of all they say happy saint patrick's day it is fucking winter <laughs> got, like a puppy coat on i know chicago is the windy city and it's you know it northern north of the country and everything but it's like snowing out like first day of spring is like only a couple days away and why does it matter that it's saint patrick's day is that supposed to i don't know time because they haven't defined what time the movie's taking place in earlier well like i guess the present day i guess it would be september because if it's saint patrick's day and she's been gone for six months it would be about september and they're going to a high school football game. So probably the first one. Of the yeah, 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 yeah. But it is that weird thing where it's like, what does this have to do with nothing? That? Why does it have nothing. to be St. Patrick's Day? That's just such I a don't weird know. line of dialogue. Because because if you say something like that, and then I see the aesthetic, like I don't mind that it's winter. But if you say it's St. Patrick's Day, and then it's just fucking snowing outside, I'm like, well, that's weird. <laughs> like mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Very minor quibble, I know. But it was just it it was a moment, I guess, that what I'm. 
I don't think it's the best scene in the movie because I think that not saying stuff like this doesn't happen. I just felt like that whole thing was so clunky and so didactic and like it's it's horrific. Don't get me wrong, but it yes. was just like it, it felt like this is what these people do, right? Like like come on in, it's a surprise. And I'm like I'm not saying stuff like this doesn't happen, and I think it's still uh, a message that in this whole what this whole movie and tr- covering up the death of this girl is still. Sadly, very important in the year 2021 where shit like this does happen still. It's just, it, it all felt very weirdly exposi- expo- expositional to me in a way that like didn't feel like organic drama. Right. Makes any sense. Oh, yeah. They yeah. say that she has like a intellectual disability, which the this one random guy at their like a uh, party or whatever it's just like oh yeah she's the r word right and kevin dunn actually like gets like really defensive of him but i kind of read that once it's revealed that he is like covering it up so he's like getting extra upset about yeah. that yeah 100 so even that's in the year 1999 they were like don't say that word which i thought was interesting because i was like that's something you can't say today and then well, even the characters themselves comment on it mm-hmm. but that i mean they, they like they're commenting on how you can't say it but then like you still get comedies in like the mid to late 2000s like 40 year old yeah oh yeah oh yeah, oh, yeah. So, like it's like it did take a long time for that word to get phased out yeah uh, it is even, yeah, yeah. Depre- it's even, depressing to think about but yeah and even the whole you can kiss me if you want and it's like she's clearly not into it like like even mm-hmm. that was weird to me where i was just kind of like what does this movie getting at here like yeah i i I don't know like yeah having the movie like be told i mean like it makes you like think like is it i feel like i've heard maybe people talk about it in relation to this movie like talking about i don't know if it was like other podcasts but like you know like maybe like it like 20 years later is maybe not the best look to have like a a movie about a murdered teen teenage girl be told from the perspective of like some guy who's only like tangentially related to it or anything um I, but then, like, I, I mean, weirdly, like, you know, having it be, like, her, like, you know, a, a gr- girl from, like, a beyond, like, uh, beyond the mortal world trying to reach out to people to, like, so people could solve her mystery in the real world. That reminded me weirdly of, I mean, it was a book and then made into a movie, but uh, The Lovely Bones, mm-hmm. uh, where that movie is from that perspective of the girl and everything. I mean, I don't know if that movie's very good, but, like, it is, um, it, it did make me sort of think about, like, different perspectives you could tell this I'm story from. Right. pretty sure that book came out, like, only a couple years after this movie came out probably interesting maybe they were thinking a story of echoes like yeah, watching yeah, movie yeah. thinking hmm let's watch yeah. i'm joking of course, <laughs> of course I, I, like and it is like and this is the other thing like i don't want to do the whole time trap like it is a very much a product of 1999 and i can deal with that it's just like i don't but that doesn't mean that like uh, it, it's it's weird i don't know it's weird uh and it's not like the movie objectifies her or sexualizes her in no. any way and it's not like i was offended by anything that was happening it's just i i felt like the whole thing was clunky in a way that was just convenient right any sense. yeah it's not perfect like, but i think just like how the it's just very different from the rest of the movie and also very just bleak and very stark but it's also just like it just feels like it's a completely different movie but it's also just like really like once it once it start, i mean fade to black or painted black regardless like it's just a very arresting scene and then it comes back and you feel like wait what the fuck just happened you know yeah okay we got to speed through the rest of it even though we're at the pretty much the ending tom goes to frank and it's just like you need to come over and frank sees the body and frank admits that harry and kurt um harry kurt and 
God damn it. Adam, Adam. Adam have already confessed that they have already done this. And he's pretty much just like, I wasn't going to let my kid's life get ruined because of a mistake. Leave me alone and whatnot. So Harry and Kurt show up. Harry is the landlord. Kurt is his son who actually puts the the plastic over Samantha to murder her. They come over, um, voices to displeasure with the tore up house and whatnot. Cause he's renting the house. Um, they corner Tom with the intention of killing him, but Maggie interrupts them when she arrives back home as Harry takes her hostages. Frank emerges from the basement and fatally shoots both Kurt and Harry to save Tom and Maggie. Tom notices Samantha's spirit put on her glasses and coat smile as she walks down the street and disappears, which I thought was like borderline, very corny and then borderline kind of sweet. But, and then he also says, um, after he murders Harry and Kurt, he says they were going to kill you, Tom, which he saw in his dream before, um, Kevin Dunn's character or Kevin Dunn's son kills him. So it kind of comes back. Can I just say that I found that to be a very funny line because first of all, he says it way earlier, like an hour before. And it was like, well, yeah, I mean, of course they were going to kill you. (laughs) Like his wife came in with a knife and stabbed somebody in the foot. And it was just like, they were going to kill you. And like, really? I had no idea that was their intention. (laughs) Like, and then, of course they were. And then their son, like, I guess she had the knife in the purse and the son before she leaves the wake is like, mom, take your bag you're gonna need it and i was just like uh-huh also when harry the landlord gets shot his gun goes off and it goes through the the ceiling and goes through jake's bed the sun uh it goes through his bed and i guess that's maybe showing like just like the sort of nadir i don't know if that's meant to be like the nadir of like their destru- like these guys destructive behavior like just sort of like ruining this safe neighborhood and everything like infecting everything which i don't know that's like i guess potentially interesting although i guess it you know at but least jake characters- isn't shot yeah. But, yeah, but these characters only show up when it's necessary to the plot. It doesn't True. like it right. doesn't have them in any other scene other than when it's important to the Kevin Bacon character. They don't feel like like flesh and blood people. No. They they're just there whenever it's convenient for them to be there. It, it yeah. doesn't really. Which I'm not saying that like film noir doesn't do that at all. But like this is supposed to be like I, I, I that's the thing is like it's 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 very brisk and very well and doesn't let up but also doesn't have consistent psychology for anyone and people only show up when they're needed which makes it all feel all too contrived for me right yeah and then yeah then we get like the last scene where like they decide to move to a different neighborhood which understandable uh there's some bad vibes in that neighborhood uh but then like as they're passing the houses we hear like the whisper overlap of like whispering voices and it cuts to jake who's like still hearing them i guess and like he covers his ears and then the movie ends. And then it still Which doesn't explain how Jake can hear explain. these voices. I mean, it also like is indicative of like the maybe like the movie doesn't know like whose story this should be. Should it be this? I mean, it opens and closes with the sun. Right. Like, the first shot is of the sun. Yeah. Last shots of the sun. Maybe it should have been the sun story. I love the sixth sense, but like you know, it's I don't. I mean, it's just kind of confused. I guess there's like whose story this should well, be. Well, that that's the thing is like you'd think that David Cup being the the screenwriter and director it would be more focused and instead it's not because you're right the the first opening shot it's practically breaking the fourth wall with the son talking to us and you're like oh it's his story and then it's like oh wait it's kevin bacon's story oh wait it's this oh wait it's so it's like that that i think is what's most frustrating about it to me is knowing that david cup like wrote and directed this thing and still doesn't have a big perspective it's also one of those endings it made me i mean it made me think of I don't know if any of you have seen this movie, but Gothica basically. Oh hell yeah! Story, mm-hmm. which is way dumber and way, way dumber. flashier. Yes, it's way dumber, but in ways is more entertaining because it's just stupid and but it has more consistency in terms of like 
what Halle Berry's drive is for this, even though, like, I mean, nothing in that movie makes any sense. I mean, she's a psychiatrist who murders someone, and then they put her in the same facility where she treated patients. Like, it doesn't make any sense. But, like, at least her motivation is more concise. And even though it takes place in I don't know what form of reality, it's like this one's trying to be more grounded, whereas that one's trying to be much more stylish. And whether or not the style works for you is one thing. I, I still think this is a better movie than Gothica, but Gothica is the type of thing that's more fun. And I guess... It is that weird late 90s, early 2000s thing that I commented on before, where you look at this, you look at The Ring, you look at The Grudge, you look at Gothica. We were weirdly obsessed about movies where where ghosts who are women were murdered and are howling into the void, and there's one person who can hear them, and yet they're not really about anything, which is strange. Like, <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, I, I'd say The Ring is the more subvert. Weirdly, the most popular and most subversive is The Ring, where it's like, well, she was, you know, Naomi Watts also was like trying to help her, and then it's like, well, she didn't want to be helped. She just wanted to. She was just. She's too angry. She's too traumatized and too angry. Even in the afterlife, she has to like spread her trauma to everyone else. Here, it's like they're saved, and I don't think that's. No, I'm not, no. It, it's it, I like I don't want to go so far as to say it's icky because it's not like it made me feel gross, but it's not exactly okay either to be like, well, now everything's solved. Like, no, no. Like it also has that like, really, you know. it has that really corny shot when they're in front of the U-Haul and both of their arms pass and it's like really slow mo, like everything's yeah. fine now. And I'm just like, no, no. And apparently your son's still fucked up, even though we don't know why. And but whatever. I guess. And Kevin Dunn, who's like Kevin Bacon's like childhood best friend, probably going to prison too because he like is an accessory after the fact or whatever. Well, you know, like, well yeah, that and murdered two people, even though that's in self defense. But he's also on the stoop sure. afterward and he's like, this is a good neighborhood. I'm like, uh huh. Yeah, you've said that a few times. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it also made me weirdly think of Promising Young Woman in the way that they're talking about uh, men being like, is this all. And obviously Promising Young Woman is commenting on numerous genre exercises, but it was like, it, it, almost characters have that, they have their whole lives ahead of them thing. But I'm like, well, right. Promising Young Woman, whether what, which I know is controversial and people have various opinions about it, at least it was about that, where this movie just happens to be about that in the last 10 minutes, for whatever reason. Like, it's not really about that at all. It's, I don't know what this movie's about, and it doesn't need to be about anything. It, it doesn't have to, but like, if you're going to throw stuff out there that is like serious, like stuff like this, it's like, why? Like it has no focus. I I, I don't know. I, I mean, I get you. Point. I get you. Would it be bad? I mean, I don't know if this is like a good idea for a movie, but I did think about what would the movie be like if a similarly, similarly skeptical character like Kevin Dunn, because Kevin Dunn is also skeptical of like the hypnotism thing. It'd be, what if he was the one who like started seeing all these visions and <laughs> he had a reason actually to not want to like tell people what he was seeing because he realizes, well, I know why I'm seeing this and everything. And or maybe he doesn't know like his son's like committed the murder or whatever. Like that would be, I don't know. I, that, that might, that might've been like more like that would maybe be thorny and also potentially icky, but like, I don't know, like that would maybe be a bit of an, again, like sort of like potentially edgy, like sort of thing where he's like, you know, this guy is like seeing these things and he has a reason for why he doesn't want to see them. And it's like, uh -huh. I guess what like the, I, the, I guess uh, what I was, I guess what I was trying to say is like, I think about like a lot of, cause I watched a lot of nineties junkie thrillers in the nineties that were like, like, 
just trying to be genre exercises that touched upon important issues mm-hmm. like this, but never were really interested in them. And then, like, like they were just like, well, this stuff happens all the time, and we're trying to make it palatable entertainment for a hundred minutes. And in some ways, I'm nostalgic for movies that don't reek of self-importance like this, which I guess is what I kind of found found kind of refreshing but then at the same time it's like i don't care if you're a genre exercise but like you're throwing this theme at us in the last 10 minutes and you're like this is what the movie's really about and it was like is it yeah is it what it was about like like i I, you know like why can't you just be a movie like i i i don't know like it's weird yeah to use the phrase i've used many times throughout discussing this movie window dressing it's 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 only just like window dressing it's very surface level stuff yeah it's yeah. yeah And, like, look, I love being manipulated by junk for 90 minutes and then and shutting my brain off and not having to think about anything. It's just sort of that thing where it's like, well, if you're going to address how this is an important issue, like, then, like, don't just, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to shut my brain off if it, if this is what the movie's boiling over to, to men covering up the murder of a woman and then saying this is a good town and we have to keep that image it was like well that was never what this movie was about no (laughs) no it just happened to be about this at the end where it's like well then i'm gonna get annoyed that it's undercooked because Mm -hmm. you're addressing something that actually happens that's pretty serious and then just making it part of as brighton pointed earlier this character's arc which i don't need the movie to be not i'm not screaming that it needs to be self-important because that could go terribly wrong too it's just it's just it's just like what what is this like what am i here for apart like if if it's going to be fun make it fun and schlocky but you kind of want to make it like adult in quotation marks and professional and like mature but that actually makes it more immature right yeah totally yeah i think that's all we have to say on stir of echoes it just Mm -hmm. the ending just yeah just it definitely feels like well we avenged her death now everything's fine it's just mm, no but maybe it isn't yeah like that's 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 a a note of ambiguity yeah but it's not even like it's not even like dead women is the theme either because who no. knows what voices those sun are, the, the sun's hearing it's just like you can just see ghosts yeah so it's just you know yeah, yeah. speaking of movies with ambiguous endings oh, should we geez. move on to soul survivors <laughs> thank you for listening to this week's episode of almost major as we talked about early in the episode this was going to be a double feature with soul survivors but we learned that we should just do one movie an episode and not have a three-hour episode so Check back next week for our discussion with Soul Survivors. Please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Please follow the pod on Twitter at Almost Major so you can keep up to date with what we'll be covering in the future. Myself, I can be found at Twitter on and on Letterbox at Kev Bonesy, K-E-V-B-O-N-E-S-Y. Bryden can be found on Twitter at Bryden Doyle and Letterbox J Doyle. Charlie can be found on Twitter and Letterbox at CNash91. Once again, thank you for listening.